Welcome to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning into our series, Christocentric, based out of our study on the book of Philippians. For more information about this sermon and other resources, please visit christianrenewalhhi.org. Four, we're going to be in Philippians chapter four. This morning we'll read verse two through nine. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that you would speak. We acknowledge this scripture as holy, inspired, infallible from your breath. And so, God, we just say this is your time, Holy Spirit. We ask that you would be in our midst, that you would convict, that you would encourage. Lord, we ask that we would leave this room more like Jesus because we encountered the Holy Spirit through the teaching and preaching of your word. Lord, guard my lips. We know everything that I say is not infallible. We're very, very sure of that. And so we ask that you would guard my lips, Lord. Everything from my mouth that that is not from your heart, I pray, would go through one ear and out the other. But everything that is from your heart, God, we pray that it would grip us. We just say, grip us this morning, Holy Spirit. In your name we pray, amen, amen. Some studies say 15% of Americans say they wrestle with anxiety at a clinical level. Some studies say closer than 20. 20% of Americans wrestle on a regular basis with anxiety. It's interesting to consider that in this nation that has prospered far beyond any other nation in history that we know, that we are desperately anxious, depressed, and hopeless. I, I think to any consistent thinker, This fact should prove to us that comfort does not necessitate peace. That a comfortable society is not necessarily a society that really knows peace. We don't wrestle with the disease that we wrestled with a hundred years ago. Famine, drought, don't plague us like they did in the past. The days of the Great Depression are far behind us, but we're still anxious, nervous, afraid, and depressed. Comfort is not the foundation of peace. Francis Schaeffer loved to point out that the rich and wealthy in our society are not exempt um, from the statistics of uh, the likeliness of suicide, that that our wealthy communities um, experience suicide as often um, as our poor. The statistics waver, but definitely experience suicide. He said that... um, Schaefer would say that our society has two chief values. their personal peace and affluence. Affluence meaning um, wealth and power. But personal peace, uh, according to Schaefer, in our society is defined as being left alone. Personal peace means to make enough money to have enough material goods to no longer need to work and to sort of have your own island where you live where no one can bother you anymore. Personal peace in our society is the chief desire, and that desire is essentially to prosper enough that we can just be left alone. And we think peace is being left alone. Um, But being left alone long enough actually produces this crazy thing called loneliness. And, And loneliness is a cruel place to live.
Recent studies actually show that the, the people group that's most likely to commit suicide are those who, uh, how do you say it well, the people who have submitted to the idea of keeping up with the Joneses. The people who live in houses that are beyond their means, who drive cars beyond their means. The people who have embraced the lie that if they could have more stuff, then they would eventually have peace. That that people group is actually the most likely to commit suicide. It's not the poorest of the poor who live amongst the poorest of the poor, or even necessarily the richest of the rich. It's those who try to live beyond their means and who are scratching and calling for more material goods, hoping that material things will actually produce Peace, But again, comfort is not the prerequisite to peace. Some studies show that young people today are three times more likely to commit suicide than in the 50s. So in an age of comfort, health, and wealth, we are actually more anxious, more likely to take our own lives, more depressed and hopeless. Comfort does not undergird real real peace. Although you can be comfortable and have peace. You can also be uncomfortable and have peace. Your level of comfort actually has no direct correlation to your level of peace. Your relationship with Jesus does. And this week I thought about Betsy Ten Boom, who we talked about before, who is the older sister of Corey Ten Boom, seven years her senior. She was the oldest of the five Ten Boom children. She worked at, she kept the books. You know, the family were clock makers, watch makers. She was the bookkeeper. And Corey Timboon in The Hiding Place and in um, another book she wrote, A Prisoner and Yet, recounts the spiritual maturity and depth of Betsy. Remember, we've said this before, the um, Germans are bombing the city and Betsy's praying for the Germans. Not praying for her safety, but praying for the Germans. She was struck by an officer who interrogated her, um, said later that she felt sorry for the man who was driven by such anger and desperately needed to know the love of Jesus. She ministered to the women in the concentration camp. Remember, her, their family lived in Holland, and they were Christians, but they were um, convicted of hiding Jews from uh, Nazi rule, and so they landed in concentration camps themselves. And in the concentration camp, Betsy is steadily ministering to the women that she's locked up with. Corey once describes Betsy um, sitting on her bunk and said that she was leaning back on her bunk knitting and Corey said there was something very homely about her. She said that she could imagine uh, Betsy at home sitting on the couch knitting kind of in peace in this serene state. And Corey said it was strange to now watch her sister in a concentration camp sitting on the top bunk, but still in peace, still homely. Betsy had a hominess about her while she lived at home in Holland and a hominess about her as she lived in the hell that the Nazis made for her. She had peace and comfort and peace in what most of us would describe as hell on earth. And a day came, this was what I was thinking about this week, a day came where Corey and Betsy were now together in a camp and um, the general came with a pink piece of paper and called Corey and Betsy and the other prisoners told Corey and Betsy, they said, that peace That pink piece of paper is a slip for your release. Anytime there's that pink form, the prisoners get released. And so Corey and Betsy were excited. They were given all of their jewelry back, all of their money. They had all of their possessions in their bags. 
and they hugged their fellow prisoners and prayed for them and they held hands. Um, Corey describes this peace she has as she holds the hand of her older sister, walks outside and sees the sun and the flowers, and she's walking towards a train. And as they get to the train, they find themselves in a line with all of their goods and so excited to go home. They were ecstatic. And uh, a, a man, another prisoner, says to Corey and Betsy, he says, if you know how to pray, you better get to it. And Betsy told the man, oh, we're, we're getting released. And the man told Betsy, you're not being released. You're just being transferred. And where you're being transferred and why you're being transferred, that's what you should be praying about. That's something to be anxious about. And Betsy responded quickly. Evidently, the Lord still has work for us to do here. And what a response. What a trust in the plans of Jesus. And then she begins to sing. Let us bring all of our homage to Jesus. Sing of his love and his might. Great things he will certainly give him who makes the Lord's will his delight. I do not fear the dim tomorrow, for my Savior holds my hand. Strong in him I turn from sorrow, and I face the unknown land. May I go on ever certain that thou does what is best. May I carry on one day's burdens with a quiet strength and rest. Many of us, myself included, live in a society of comfort yet have been broken under the pressure of anxiety and fear. And here we have Betsy Tim Boom thinking she's going to be released from a concentration camp where she's been for months. She just spent months in solitary confinement, and now she's living in a barracks, and she thinks she's going to be released. And rather than totally freaking out and melting down, she says, Ah, Jesus must still want to use me here. And then she sings a beautiful hymn of how she'll trust Jesus in sorrow. She'll face the darkness with a quiet strength and rest. She has peace when the world around her totally crumbles because peace is not dependent upon your comfort. In a moment of great disappointment, she sings, may I carry one day's burdens with a quiet strength and rest. He must still have work for us to do. Corey much later wrote once that Satan... um, Satan will counterfeit many of the works of God, but Satan cannot counterfeit peace. Because real peace is heavenly. It can't be found in the things of the world. Momentary comfort, maybe. What we call peace and quiet, maybe. But not, not real peace. Peace is heavenly. And as we approach Philippians again this week, we remember we're, we're, we're getting close to the conclusion of Philippians. And uh, we remember that as Paul writes this letter, he himself is in prison. And he tells us in chapter one and in chapter two that he's not sure if he's going to die as a result of this imprisonment. Yet we don't find him discouraged. We find him optimistic, saying to live is Christ. If I live, it will be to the pleasure and joy of Jesus, and to die is gain. If I die, I will gain fully Jesus. We find this profound optimism in Paul in prison, where he says, don't fret about me. All of the guards have now heard the gospel. Paul, like the Tim Booms, is in prison, yet has peace. He is in a scenario that is much darker than many of us will ever face in our modern Western society, yet he has a peace that we can't imagine. Where in the world did he get it from? And how in the world do we find it? 
So as we read our text today, he'll encourage the Philippian church to find and to grasp and to cling to the peace that is beyond all understanding. Beyond all understanding. All right, let's read Philippians 4, verse 2 through 9. I entreat Udiah and I entreat Sintesh to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. He writes from prison. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard, seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses the NASB, all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So what did Paul just teach us about peace? This lesson that he clearly understood because he's not freaking out in prison like we would be. First, I think Paul said that peace has to be awakened. Peace has to be activated. Be anxious for nothing but in everything. There's something to do here in order to awaken peace. John chapter 14 verse 27, Jesus says this, Peace I leave with you. My peace... I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. And so peace, according to Jesus, is in the possession of the saints. The saints have peace, yet Paul tells us here that we'll have to awaken that peace, we'll have to activate that peace, that Peace is a spiritual rest, a spiritual trust that's made available to us by Jesus, even deposited in us by Jesus. But it will need to be awakened. So within you today, you carry all the possessions you need to possess to live a life of peace. You have all of the supplies. Jesus promised them. It's common in church culture today to say peace is a person. It's Jesus. And that's true in many ways. But it's not always a helpful statement. It's not helpful to say to the believer who's living in anxiety and fear and depression, peace is a person, his name is Jesus. Because if you follow that logic perfectly, what you're saying is that I don't have Jesus. And as a believer in Jesus, I know that he never leaves me or forsakes me. So I can live in complete, total anxiety, fear, and freak out and know that I still have Jesus. 
But peace is accessed as I learn to trust the Jesus that I have. And so as we continually say, peace is a person, it's Jesus, and it's not always helpful. We need to talk about the character of the person, Jesus. We need to start talking about the nature of Jesus. What does Jesus mean when he says, I'm the good shepherd? I don't let a single sheep. No, no one can pluck you from my hand. It's those characteristics of Jesus that we begin to understand and put our trust in that activates peace. As a believer, I don't lack him. I have unbroken fellowship with Jesus. What can separate from me from his love? Height, depth, anxiety. No, it's not that you lack Jesus this morning if you live in anxiety. It's that you must learn to activate peace and trust the Jesus who you have relationship with. Betsy says if we're not leaving this concentration camp today, it must be because Jesus still has work for us to do. Paul says, I'm in prison, but the guards have heard the gospel. Every season of my life is meaningful. Every season of my life lived in Jesus is purposeful. There is not a day that I live that God's hand is not at work moving. The shepherd of my life is not caught off guard. He's not nervous. He's not biting his nails. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I don't fear evil for he's with me. The, 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 the good shepherd. Now. Does that mean that everything that I experience is from the perfect will of God? As Arminius, we say, no, like, of course, of course, Satan has a plan. And of course, the world has a plan. But it does mean we do believe emphatically that God is not caught off guard, that God has perfect foreknowledge. So every time the enemy sets up a trap for my life, it's in God's perfect will to use the very thing that the enemy planned to destroy me for his good. And so Joseph says, what you meant for evil to his brother, God meant for good. Even the things that feel like darkness, taste like darkness, smell like the plans of hell, God has seen beforehand and will use in the future for my goodness and my glory for the advancement of the gospel. He's not caught off guard by darkness. The scripture says even darkness isn't dark to him. So, of course, it's not everything I experience is in the perfect will of of God. Yet it is in the will of God. Yet God is going to redeem the darkness for his glory. So the author of Hebrews, following the thought earlier, the author, author of Hebrews says that we have to strive to enter rest. And that sounds oxymoronic. Put energy into resting. We think that rest is momentary relief from putting energy into anything. Rest is when I get home and can put my feet up and I don't have to do anything else. But the scriptures say in order to activate peace and and the context of this passage in Hebrews is not doesn't just mean peace. It's talking about salvation from a much larger perspective. But in order to enter into rest, you have to strive towards it. it means there's something to do in order to live in peace. So what does Paul tell us to do to enter into peace? First, he says not to be anxious for anything. You are to refuse anxiety. Anxiety is an insult on your peace. It's your position as a believer to not embrace it. Be anxious for nothing. 
As soon as, as soon as anxiety begins to knock on my door, I am to immediately resort to prayer and thanksgiving. So first, I resist anxiety. Second, I pray. Here we enter into the idea that God does desire a co-laboring with the saints. There are some things that only happen as we pray. You don't live in, in, in the peace of God by simply passively waiting to experience it. You live in the peace of God by living a prayerful life, by living in prayer, by, by coming to God with all of today's burdens and trials and presenting them to God. And the things that you experience, there are a burden and a trial and are from the hand of hell or from the schemes of man. You present them to God, invite God into those things. And in that communion, we have peace because I've released my burden into the hands of the one who can actually do something about it. If you lack peace, it may be because you found yourself in situations in which you have not gone to God in prayer about. Saints of old used to say they were burdened in prayer. They would go to God in prayer and be burdened for the souls of the lost or be burdened for a family member who was struggling with addiction. And they would pray until the burden was lifted. They went to God with their burdens and stayed in prayer long enough that God took the burden away and then they got up and left. They, they were burdened in prayer. So many times we pray passive, off-the-cuff prayers and that's not exactly bringing your request to God prayerlessness produces peacelessness and then he says you'll have to through thanks, thanksgiving through thankfulness stir your heart to remember all that God has done and to remember that God promises to keep us in his perfect love and in his perfect will it's a really familiar passage from the hiding place um, that I want to read to you quickly that expounds upon this part. This is Corey talking when she says this. We lay back struggling against the nausea that swept over us from the reeking straw. Talking about their, their bunks. Suddenly I sat up striking my head on the cross slats above. Something had pinched my leg. Fleas, I cried. Betsy, this place was swarming with them. Here and here Another one. Betsy, how can we live in such a place? Show us, show us how. It was said so matter-of-factly, it took me a second to realize she was praying. More and more, the distinction between prayer and the rest of life seemed to be vanishing for Betsy. More and more, the distinction between prayer and the rest of life seemed to be vanishing. Corey, she said excitedly, he's given us the answer before we asked, as he always does. In the Bible this morning... Where was it? Read that part again. I glanced down the long, dim aisle to make sure no guard was in sight. Then I drew the Bible from its pouch. It was in First Thessalonians, I said. We were on our third complete reading of the New Testament since leaving, leaving Sigvin again. In the feeble light, I turned the pages. Here it is. Comfort the frightened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. See that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. It seemed writtenly expressed to Ravensbrook. Go on, said Betsy. That wasn't all. Oh, yes. Rejoice always. Pray constantly. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. That's it, Corey. 
That's his answer. Give thanks in all circumstances. That's what we can do. We can start right now to thank God for every single thing about this new barrack. I stared at her. Then around me at the dark, foul-aired room. Such as, I said. Such as being assigned here together. I bit my lip. Oh yes, Lord Jesus. Such as what you're holding in your hands. I looked down at the Bible. Yes, thank you, dear Lord, that there was no inspection when we entered here. Thank you for all these women here in this room who will meet you in these pages. Yes, said Betsy. Thank you for the very crowding here. Since we're packed so close, many more will hear. She looked at me expectantly. Corey, she prodded. Oh, all right, thank you for the jammed, crammed, stuffed, packed, suffocating crowds. Thank you, Betsy went on serenely, for the fleas. For the fleas, this was too much. Betsy, there's no way even God can make me grateful for a flea. Give thanks in all circumstances, she quoted. It doesn't say in pleasant circumstances. Fleas are a part of where God's placed us. We stood between the tiers of our bunks and gave thanks for the fleas. This time I was sure Betsy was wrong. Beth at the back of the barracks was formed yet another line where there never be an end to the columns and weights to receive our ladle of turnip soup in the center room. Then as quickly as we could for the press of people, Betsy and I made our way to the rear of the dormitory room where we held our worship service. Around our own platform area, there was not enough light to read the Bible, but back here a small light bulb cast a warm yellow circle on the wall. And here an even larger group of women gathered. These were services like no others. These times in Barracks 28. At first, Bessie and I called these meetings with great timidity. But night after night went by and no guard ever came near us. We grew bolder. So many now wanted to join us that we held a second service after the evening roll call. There we were under rigid surveillance. Guards in their warm wool capes marching constantly up and down. It was the same in the center room of the barracks. Half a dozen guards or camp police always present. Yet in the large dormitory room, there was almost no supervision at all. We did not understand it. One evening, I got back to the barracks late from a wood gathering foray outside the walls. A light snow lay on the ground, and it was hard to find sticks and twigs with which a small stove was kept going in each room. Betsy was waiting for me, as always, so that we could wait through the food line together. Her eyes were twinkling. You're looking extraordinarily pleased with yourself. If you've you've ever seen videos or heard Corey Timboon preach, you can hear her saying that with her kind of dry sarcasm. You look extraordinarily pleased with yourself, she told Betsy. Betsy says, you know, we never understood why we had so much freedom in this room. She said, well, I found out that afternoon, she said, there's a confusion in her knitting group about sock sizes. They asked the supervisor to come in and settle it, but she wouldn't. She wouldn't step through the door, and neither would the guards. And do you know why? Betsy could not keep the triumph from her voice. Because of the fleas, she said. That place was crawling with fleas, they said. That story has been retold for quite some time, but it still brings a strong message that even the very things that seem to torment us may be in God's plan to protect us and even to use us. So the thing that drove Corey nuts was the very thing that gave her the opportunity to preach the gospel to hurting, broken, lost people. Matthew Henry, you know, the Puritan that we quote a lot, once was um, robbed. And it said that he said this, He wrote this in his diary. Let me be thankful first because I was never robbed before. 
Second, although they took my wallet, they did not take my life. Third, because although they took my all, it wasn't much. Fourth, because it wasn't I, it was I who was robbed and not I who robbed. Thankfulness is a spiritual discipline that causes our atmosphere to resist pessimism. It's a spiritual, a spiritual practice that cultivates an atmosphere of peace. How often do we talk about the spiritual practice of thankfulness? How much are we as a church or the Western church at all working to cultivate a posture of thankfulness? It may be in cultivating thankfulness that we begin to resist anxiety and pessimism. This week I thought, I, I, I dare you, I challenge you to wake up every morning and thank God for three things and see if next week you're not a little less anxious than you were the week before. So we draw on peace as we pray and foster an attitude of thankfulness. And Paul encourages us to continue in that peace by thinking on things that are just pure, lovely. Isaiah 26 Verse 3 says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Second, Paul says that this peace is beyond comprehension. It is not restricted by logic. It surpasses understanding. The peace that we possess is not contained by logic. It, It passes logic. Yet it's not illogical. The peace that I possess is not illogical. It is because I believe God is in control. I have peace because I know that he works on my behalf. I have peace this morning because I know that Jesus still sits on the throne. I have peace because my life is in his hands. I have peace because he's the Messiah that crushes the head of the serpent. I have peace because he's the triumphant one, the omnipotent king. I have peace because I know that he is perfectly good, omnibenevolent. He never fails. He never leaves nor forsake. I have peace because I know Know that my Savior lives, and even the grave couldn't contain the great power that exists within his person. I have peace because I trust in Jesus. It's not illogical to have peace in the face of disaster because I know the God whom I walk with. But peace is not contained to natural logic, meaning everything can be crumbling around you. My bank account could be screaming. Overdraft fees piling up like the grocery bill. All reports may say the business is failing. Yet I can possess peace that supersedes natural circumstances. It's beyond the bank account. It's beyond the reports that say the business is failing. But this is where I really want to harp for a moment. But peace doesn't stop there. Peace is not merely having faith that when the bank account is low, that things aren't going to crumble. Peace is not merely having faith that God's not going to let the business fail. As, as Pentecostal charismatics, we need to hear this. Peace exists even when the business does fail. Peace exists even when the house is foreclosed upon. Even when the relationship that you put all of your hope and trust in falls apart, this peace still exists. Betsy thought, oh, we'll get out of the concentration camp today. And they say, no, you're just getting transferred. Peace still exists. We're shallow. 
We're so shallow to think that the peace of God is, is, is a confidence that God will never let us experience persecution or suffering or sorrow. That we are somehow exempt from hardship. No, we're not exempt from hardship. We're promised that we can possess peace in the midst of hardship. And when we continue to teach our generations that, that the gospel is about being healthy, wealthy, and happy. And God's never going to allow you to experience sorrow. Every time life brings a curveball and smacks them in the forehead, they want to quit on God. That's not what the gospel is about. Jesus gives us peace in our sorrow. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Not that you'll never walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But when you're in the valley of the shadow of death, he's still there. That's the promise of scripture. For heaven's sake, we've got to get that right. I've thought this thought this week we are... I think Sue and I were talking in a staff meeting and I've thought about the the Pentecostal charismatic culture that we live in that constantly says to young people, you have a great calling and you have a great destiny and God has great plans for you. And what we really mean by that is one day you're going to have an incredible ministry and you're going to have a microphone in your hand or you're going to be a very successful businessman. And we keep prophesying to people's future that God is going to use you in incredible Big ways. And what we've done is we actually began to motivate our young people by a desire for success. And what we're saying to them is God's going to use you. And they think, oh, if I walk with God, then one day I'm going to be a very successful businessman. And maybe not. Christianity is never fueled by desire for future success. Christianity is always fueled by reflection upon the cross of Jesus. A reflection upon what he did for me on Calvary. I love you, Jesus, even if my life completely crumbles and falls apart. I am not driven by a false premise that I'll never have to experience sorrow and that my life's going to be beautiful and happy and healthy and wealthy. I am driven by the truth that Jesus on the cross of Calvary bore my shame man and maybe certainly some of our young people do have great callings but some of them are going to be stay-at-home moms and some of them are going to be school teachers who teach faithfully but what we're telling them is you're going to be the best evangelist that's ever lived the earth and what happens is they quit Maybe they were called to be a a, a school teacher evangelist and to serve Jesus faithfully. They quit because their faith is based on what God's going to do for them rather than what God did for them. And my life has to be built upon what God did for me on the cross. That singular truth breaks me every morning and it breaks me every evening and it breaks me at lunchtime. That truth that Jesus, the most holy, pure man who ever existed, allowed his back to be beaten, broken for me. He doesn't promise us that life is going to be beautiful and wonderful. He promises us that even when life is hellish, you'll still carry the peace of heaven. Now, what was I talking about? The last thing that Paul says, I need to wrap up because we're going too long. The last thing that Paul says is that peace guards. The peace will guard your heart and your mind. So uh, to have peace that guards me from anxiety means that peace is established in my heart before chaos ever comes. The believer is not to cry out for peace every time a storm comes. They're to actually possess it. 
so that the storm actually can instill fear. Of course, we need to cry out for it sometimes. Of course, we in our own spiritual immaturity um, need to, in moments of chaos, cry out, God, give me peace. But the goal is as we grow that the peace is already there. And when, when everyone around me is crumbling with fear and anxiety, I can stand and say, no, God's good, man. Even what the enemy means for darkness, God will flip on his head in just a moment and use it for his goodness. And if we as a church don't learn to live in peace and not just cry out for it in moments of a freak out, but learn to live in peace, we won't be able to minister in moments of chaos. But those who learn to possess peace and live in peace, they're actually guarded from anxiety and fear. So when everyone else is crumbling, they stand protected by the peace that already is established on their hearts. And now they're the ministers. They're the one who are able to give what they have. You can't bring peace to a moment of chaos if you're biting your nails too. But when you begin to live in it, allow it to guard, then you can step into a moment of chaos and begin to minister. Then you begin to sing with Betsy Tim Boom in a moment of complete chaos. You begin to sing, let me cast my burden on him one day at a time and let me live with a quiet strength and rest. The peace that she possessed guarded her from the anxiety of that moment. And in that moment, she ministers rather than freaks. Peace is something you learn to cultivate day in and day out. If you go ahead and stand to your feet, I'm going to wrap this up so we get out of here before the storm comes. (laughs) An altar team, you guys can go ahead and come. This morning, I'm confident, I am completely and totally confident that there are some in this room who are struggling with anxiety, depression, shame. Your, your emotional health is shaken. Your, your mental health is tormented. I'm confident of that. But if you're a believer in Jesus, I, I want to tell you that Jesus said he, he gave you peace and he wouldn't take it away. That you possess within you everything you need to live a life of peace. What you need to do is activate that peace. Some of us feel fine today. Today the sun's shining and everything's happy. But you know that every time that bill comes, you totally freak out. Some of you are completely fine today, but you know that your life is this ebb and flow of anxiety and fear that you don't have a peace that guards. It's my goal that when you walk out of the room today, you'll be able to say with the psalmist, even though I walk through this valley in the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For you're with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. There may be some here today who would say, I don't, I don't have peace with God at all. We want to just say to you quickly that 
What the scriptures teach is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What the scriptures teach is that heaven and hell are both real, eternal places. And that every person will face God and give account for all of their life. What we want to say to you this morning is this. If you have not given your life to Jesus, you are guilty. The scriptures teach that every human being that ever walked the earth is a sinner and and guilty and deserves death. And the Bible says that no man enters heaven because he's done enough good works. Every man that makes it to heaven makes it to heaven because they trusted in Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect life because he knew that you couldn't. He died a cruel and harsh death so that you wouldn't have to. Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.